0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way as a church through this great gospel, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up um, this uh, first major section in the Gospel of John this morning. I guess uh, we are and we aren't. When I began studying this week, I had every intention of preaching verses 37 through. To fifty, just kind of wrapping up this chapter. But um, the more I got into it, uh, the more I realized there was some uh, some deep caverns here, um, theological truths that um, I didn't want to just breeze over because I thought if we did that, you'd be you'd walk out of here maybe with some uh, questions, uh, wondering about certain things that that uh, John says here in his gospel. So I thought it'd be wise this morning that we. Maybe just slow down a little bit and, and, um, and really look a little, uh, take some time just to explore in these caverns and uh, you probably still will leave with questions uh, because we're going to be in mystery land uh, this morning. Uh, there's, there's mysteries um, in the scriptures, uh, there's mysteries in the Christian life that uh, serve if anything just to humble us and to remind us that we're not God. And he is, and his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and there's just some things that we're going to have to wait to get to heaven to figure out. And so let me just read this passage, John chapter 12, and uh, starting in verse 37, and uh, you can probably pick some of these uh, deep caverns uh, as we read them. Don't fall in prematurely here. Uh, Let's wait till we get there together. Uh, So we can uh, travel down into these things uh, together as a group. But John chapter 12 verse 37, John records these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted and heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory, and he spoke of Him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself, who sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Father, we appeal to you even now, and it's amazing to think that we are talking to the same Father that Jesus talked to when he was here on earth. And Lord, we need your help today to get our minds around some very difficult truths in your word that on the surface seem very contradictory. They don't seem to make sense to us. They even at some points don't seem fair from our human perspective. But I ask that your spirit would just grant us insight and understanding and, um, Lord, most of all, application, Lord, that we would see the, the practical implications of these Verses, Lord, and how they should change the way we live our lives and the way we relate to Christ, the way we relate to unbelievers, and uh, even one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, there are two times in the gospels where it is recorded that Jesus marveled, that he marveled. It's an interesting word, marvel. It it means to be amazed. To be astonished, to be surprised, to be stunned, to wonder, to not believe your eyes or your ears, to be dumbfounded, to be flabbergasted, to to just take a step back and go, wow, are you serious? Are you kidding me? And so there were two things that amazed Jesus, that astonished Jesus, that surprised Jesus. Jesus, that even stunned Jesus, two things that made him not believe his eyes or his ears that that, that caused him to be dumbfounded or flabbergasted to to take a step back and go, wow, really? Are you serious? You say, what are those two things? Well, in the words of the blogger, pastor Kevin DeYoung, someone you may have heard of before, uh, the two things are these. Number one, those who believe when it's not expected that they would believe, and those who disbelieve, when there's every reason that they should believe. Those who believe when it's not expected that they would believe, and those who disbelieve when there's every reason that they should believe. Uh, said another way, Jesus marveled at belief in those least likely to believe, and he marveled at unbelief in those most likely to believe. Let me show you these two instances where Jesus marveled. The first one is Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. We have the story of the centurion uh, whose servant was ill. um, And uh, he came to Jesus asking him to heal his servant. Again, this is a Roman centurion interrupting Jesus on his mission to the Jews. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, and when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to the other one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he, what, marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I mean, I think this Gentile, this pagan Gentile, this Roman centurion is showing all of you guys up. I haven't seen any Jew with this kind of faith. And so he marveled, he marveled again in Mark chapter 6, turn over there, Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and here is Jesus ministering in his own hometown of, of Nazareth, and uh, we know that that didn't go so well, right, because a, a prophet is, is without honor, right, in his own hometown. Mark chapter six verse one. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and the disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, "Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as he's performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That's like, well, what is this is. This is little Jesus. We remember Jesus growing up and running around the neighborhood, and he's claiming now to be the Messiah? Are you kidding me? And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household, and he could do do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And here it is, verse 6, and he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. He stepped back and went, wow, are you you kidding me? I mean, the, the, the people that had the most reason to believe, more than anybody else, don't believe? And so Jesus marveled at a Gentile who expressed great faith, and he marveled at his own family and friends who had no faith, essentially the one furthest from him, who should have been the least likely to believe in him, did. And those closest to him, who had the most reason to believe in him, didn't. And it caused Jesus to marvel. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who marveled at the unbelief of those who had the most reason to believe in Jesus. Here at this point in John's Gospel, he paused if you will, to to express his astonishment that even though Jesus had performed many powerful signs and wonders and miracles, his own people still didn't believe in him. And one of the main themes that John uh, introduced in in the prologue back in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, uh, that he'd been developing, he's been developing throughout the, the first half of this his account of the life and ministry of Christ, is how those who were his own did not what? receive him but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who what believe in his name and so we've learned that in the first 12 chapters John included seven of the of the most um, convincing miracles that Jesus performed and his whole reason whole purpose for doing that for including those signs uh, in his gospel was so that people would believe in Jesus Uh, Just to remind you of the theme of of, of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these that I've written, I've included, uh, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. And so the whole point of John's gospel is that people would believe However, so far, according to his record, not a whole lot of people were believing. And what's more, Jesus' own people were not believing. And so it may have been that John realized that skeptics, both in his day when he was writing and even all the way to our day today, um, would possibly use this, to argue that if Jesus' own people, especially the Jewish religious leaders who were the experts in the Old Testament, if they missed the obvious implications of his signs and, and rejected him as their Messiah, well, that's evidence that his claims weren't true. I mean, if, if, if his own people didn't receive him, why should I? Well, why would I? I'm, a, I'm not even a Jew, I'm a Gentile. Why would I want anything to do, do with Jesus if his own people rejected him? And so I think John wanted to make sure his readers understood why the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. And, and, and again, he's all, it's almost like, hey, John, you're writing about wanting us to believe in Jesus, but all you're showing us is all these people that didn't believe in Jesus. You're kind of shooting yourself in, your, in the foot, right? You're being counterproductive here. So he stops here, and as he closes his first major section of his gospel, he not only summarized Jesus' entire public ministry, but he also gave an extended theological explanation for Israel's shocking unbelief. I mean, how in the world was this possible? How, How could there be such rank unbelief in the face of such irrefutable evidence? And so John made it clear here that their unbelief was not because of a lack of evidence. Jesus had given them plenty of convincing proofs, but they refused to repent and believe in him. And last week we saw Jesus making his final public appeal, to the Jews to repent and believe, and it was a very urgent appeal in verse 35 and 36. He says, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. And then notice John says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. And I think at that point, That was the end of the Lord's public ministry as far as John's record is concerned because the next time we see Jesus is in chapter 13 and he's cloistered away in the upper room with his disciples for the next, what, three or four chapters. And then the next time we see him, he comes out of the upper room and he's immediately betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified and he rises from the dead and he goes back to heaven. And so we, last week, kind of witnessed the last public ministry, if you will, or public appeal uh, of Jesus to the Jews. I appreciate how one commentator kind of summarized the scene up until this point. Listen to what he said. He said, for more than three years, Jesus had presented himself to the people of Israel as the Messiah and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He had substantiated his claims by teaching with power and authority unrivaled by anyone before him. He had also performed miraculous works that no one else had ever done. Even so, throughout his ministry, Jesus had faced unbelief and rejection, particularly from Israel's religious leaders. That unbelief and rejection would soon reach its zenith at the cross. Despite massive and incontrovertible evidence, the Jewish people had concluded that Jesus was not the Messiah and should be executed as an imposter. Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ was the culmination of years of rebellion, misused privileges, and forsaking of divine truth. The terrible result was that when the truth came in the person of Jesus Christ, many could not believe, thinking they could see they were in reality spiritually blind. And that last sentence begins begins our descent, if you will, in some of these dark caverns Uh, mysterious caverns of Scripture. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Israel had a reputation for being stubborn and stiff-necked when it came to receiving and obeying God's word, right? Whenever it was about God's revelation, uh, they they typically blew it off. And so it's no wonder that when God's ultimate revelation came uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, that they did not receive him or obey him. In fact, uh, Stephen, uh, when he was uh, preaching uh, to the Jews of his day, right before he was stoned to death, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. I mean, it's like, same song, just different verse, right? Uh, w- you're doing just what they did in the Old Testament. And so because the, the Jews had continually closed their eyes and hardened their hearts to God's Word for centuries, by the time God's incarnate Word arrived on the scene in the person of His Son, they were completely blind and hard to the truth which was the real cause Of their unbelief. Again, it wasn't a lack of evidence. It was they were blind and they were hard. It's not that they would not believe, they could not believe. And there's an interesting flow here, if you maybe picked it up as I read it, this passage from 37 to to 50, that eight times the word believe is mentioned. That's the key idea here is believe. However, ironically, John was musing and reflecting on, not so much belief, but unbelief. And so really, we have a kind of a little theology here of unbelief, a little little lesson on, on unbelief and what is unbelief and why do people not believe and what, what are its causes? What are its consequences? And, and so I've divided this uh, passage into two sections. In verses 37 to 43, we see the theology of unbelief. Uh, we see its causes. And then in, in verses 44 to 50, we see the tragedy of unbelief. And we see its consequences. And so uh, this morning, we're probably just going to get uh, through the theology of unbelief and, uh, in verses 37 through 43. And so notice here... Uh, in this opening portion of this text, that, that John mentioned the two causes for the Jews' unbelief, which really illustrate the tension between, you ready? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that is always something we crash into uh, in Scripture, and we're not sure how to to make sense of this. We see all these verses that talk about clearly that God is sovereign over all things, particularly over salvation, and then we see these other verses that clearly that man's responsible and culpable, and God will hold them accountable uh, whether or not they get saved. And you're like, which is it? And again, it's this mystery that we, from a human perspective, we, we can't fully comprehend. But, but we have to kind of keep, them, uh, keep that tension there, that healthy tension. And, and so we see in this passage divine sovereignty in that God predetermined and predicted the Jews' unbelief. But we also see human responsibility in that the Jews were scared of one another, and they loved the approval of one another so much that they refused to believe in Jesus, or at least confess Him. And so which is it? It's both. It's a combination. Verse 37, but though He had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. John is again stepping back and just going, wow, are you kidding me? And he's, he's expressing his, his, his shock here and, and probably even his sorrow that in spite of all the miracles that Jesus performed, most of the Jews still refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So again, this isn't necessarily going good for John making a case that, hey, you should believe in Jesus when most of his own people aren't even believing in him. And so, as D.A. Carson writes, he said, some explanation must be given for such a large scale, catastrophic unbelief. I mean, what is up with the fact that the majority of the Jewish nation rejected Jesus? Well, he goes on and tells us, verse 38, this was what? To fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so the Jews' unbelief, according to John, was predicted in the Old Testament. And he, he begins uh, quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. He has several, makes several references to him here in, in verse 38, in verse 40, and another one in verse 41. But he begins here with Isaiah 53, which is the clearest and most complete passage in the whole Bible about how the Messiah would suffer and die. And you might even want to just turn back there to see it with your own eyes. I mean, John quotes it straight away and and, and almost uh, verbatim, but uh, just to, to see the context here at the very beginning of Isaiah fifty three verse one, the prophet asked this question: Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so, again, it's a rhetorical question here, which the implied answer is, who has believed our message? Not a whole lot, right? Very few would recognize the Messiah, even though he would display God's power through signs and wonders. That's the idea of his arm, the arm of the Lord's strength. So so who's believed our report? Not, Not a whole lot, not many. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13, he said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are, what, few who find it. In that same context, in Matthew 7, Jesus was, would, would go on to say that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, right? In other words, claim to be a Christian, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They'll say, Depart from me, I never never knew you. And so not only would most people not believe, but this is where it gets even trickier, they they could not believe. That's exactly what John says here. For this reason, they, what does your Bible say? Verse 39, could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So now he goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 and and again I would encourage you to turn back there. Isaiah chapter 6 is where God commissioned Isaiah as a prophet. And you remember after that vision of the holiness of God in the temple and and uh, Isaiah was so convicted and he said, woe is me for I am ruined and, and uh, the, the seraphim came and with that burning coal and took, uh, uh, touched his mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, verse eight, whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And God says, great, awesome. I'm glad you signed up for the job. Let me tell you a little bit about your job description. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long am I going to be doing this? Because I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. This is not what I volunteered for. Listen, when I went into the ministry as a young man, I was excited about being used by God to, to win people to Christ, to, to preach his word so that they could hear the truth and respond and, and come to know Christ and grow in Christ. And if, and if at the beginning of my time in ministry, God said, hey, I pulled me aside and said, hey, Ken, just so you know, nobody's gonna listen to anything you say. In fact, nobody's gonna get saved. In fact, you're just gonna make a lot of people mad I'd be like, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go be a plumber. No offense to the plumbers, right out there. Nothing wrong with being a plumber, but hey, I'm going to go do something else. That doesn't sound really fun. And so God's warning him here ahead of time that his mission would wouldn't be successful in the in the world's eyes of success. No one was going to listen to his message. In fact, he said he said I'm going to use you and your word, the message my word through you, to blind their eyes and to harden their hearts so they can't see or hear and be saved. Like, what is up with that? That is weird, God. I don't get that. Well, if you know the Bible, you know there's, there's several things that the Bible says blinds us. Okay, what's the, what's the first thing that should come to our minds that blinds us? sin, right? Sin blinds us. Uh, Back in John 9, at the end of the the story of the healing of the man born blind, Jesus said this in uh, John 9, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? The Pharisees were picking up on Jesus that he didn't think real highly of them, and are you implying that we're blind, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, you guys are blind as bats because you're, you're acting like you have no sin. And that's evidence. You're, you're blind to your own sin. Your sin has blinded you to the fact that you're without sin. And so, sin blinds us. What else blinds us? Or who else blinds us? Satan. Yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul is. Describing his apostolic ministry here, and in verse three he says, "Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing." In other words, I'm preaching the gospel, and for some of you, you know, this is a fragrance of life to life, and others of its it's a it's a stench of death to death. It, you know, some of you it's like you totally get it, and others there's a veil. Why? He says, because in whose case? The God of this world, verse 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So who is the God of this world? Satan, right? And he's blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And so our sin blinds us. Satan blinds us. And who else does the Bible say blinds us? I know you're having a hard time saying it. God. God blinds us. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's teaching the, the church in Thessalonica about the end times and particularly about the Antichrist and the satanic deception that's gonna come across the world in those last days during the tribulation. He says in verse... Um, Verse 8, this is Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of who? Satan, right? With all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. So... Satan is going to use the Antichrist to deceive the world. And he's going to do all these false signs and wonders, right? He's going to have these miraculous powers, apparently, and and, and look very much like Jesus looked, right, when he was here on this earth. And it says that people will be deceived. They'll be tricked. They'll believe in the Antichrist as their Savior. And then notice verse 11, for this reason, as a result... Or because of this, that they will follow Satan and the Antichrist, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. It's like God just says, fine. You want to follow the Antichrist? Have at it. And he'll confirm their deception, if you will, by sending a deluding influence so they're going to believe. God's just like affirming, yeah, go ahead. You believe that stuff? Believe it even more. And so back to the Jews, believing, uh, because the Jews continually rejected God's revelation, God punished them by making them unable to believe in Jesus. And again, this is not just a a random text here in John chapter 12, like, wow, that's weird, I guess we'll just skim over that and move on and not have to deal with it again. No, it's all over the place. you got to deal with it at some point. Like, look at Matthew chapter 13, for example. Matthew chapter 13, totally different situation uh, in Jesus' ministry. Here, he was introducing um, his instruction that he gave through parables. And uh, the the gateway into the parables and all the Gospels is the the parable of the sower and the four soils. And it was very instructive, um, kind of not only... About, uh, it was really all about how to, how to listen to parables. How do you respond to parables? Well, what kind of soil uh, is your heart, right? And, and, and notice what, what Jesus says here in, in verse 10. This is Matthew 13 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted, hold on to that thought, that's a key thought. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see what he's saying is, they're not getting it to begin with. In fact, they don't want to get it. They could care less. They're, They're so committed to their life of sin right they don't they're not listening to what these things are saying they don't they don't really care to understand And in their case, verse 14, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes otherwise they would see with their eyes hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it turn over to acts acts 28 paul quotes this very same passage from isaiah chapter 6 in acts chapter 28 he finally had made it to rome Uh, they had set him up in kind of under house arrest in there waiting for his trial before nero and people began to come to his house and and sit and listen to Paul. And, and, And in Acts chapter 28, verse 23, it says, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So he was speaking to Jews, right? Seeking to persuade them with the Old Testament scriptures, and it says, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not, what? Believe. They would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. You're like, what did, what did he say that hacked them off so much, right, that they all began to leave? Well, he quotes Isaiah six Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, but you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this, his people has become dull, their ear with their ears they scarcely hear, they have closed their eyes, and otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in, in return, and I would heal them. Notice even through that, you, you see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? It says that they have closed their eyes. And so we need to understand this, that, that Israel's rejection, okay? Israel's rejection of Jesus was not merely foreseen, but it was also by God's sovereign design. It was all part of His, his sovereign plan. Because as a result of Israel's stubborn and willful rejection of their Messiah, they were temporarily cut off or set aside, if you will, from the salvation that he offered. But it was all part of God's sovereign plan for the salvation of who? You and me, the Gentiles, right? So that we could be saved. And that is the, the, what, what is Paul's talking about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Talk about a mysterious portion of God's Word. We don't have time to, to get into it uh, this morning, but that's essentially Paul was wrestling with the identical issue of, of Jewish unbelief. What, what gives with the Jews? Why would any of us Gentiles believe in Jesus if his own people didn't believe in Jesus? And in fact, he actually quotes Isaiah 53 verse 1 in Romans chapter 10 verse 16. Just turn there quickly, um, Romans uh, Chapter 10, verse 16, after he's talking about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Not a whole lot, not not many. But then notice here, same, uh, quoting similar scripture here, In, in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, what then, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were, what? Hardened, I know that's hard to say, and the rest were, are you kidding me? They were hardened? Who, who hardened them, right? How did they get hardened? Well, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And then I wish we had time just to continue reading, but let's just jump ahead to verse 23. He says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, That's his point here. The Jews' unbelief, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are in the natural branches who are the natural men to be grafted into their own olive tree. So he's talking about, right? These, these branches got cut off, and that the Jews and and then and now the Gentiles are being grafted in. And if they will stop their unbelief, they can be re-grafted in. And how much easier would that be because they were the original vine to begin with, right? But then look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Thanks for the reminder, Paul, that this is a mystery, and that we're all trying to figure it out here, and you're trying to help us here, but it's still remains a mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation don't think you're so smart that you got everything about God figured out everything in the Bible figured out Right? not going to happen that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in what a mysterious plan God's sovereign plan of salvation that he conceived in his mind that is so much higher than our mind. Let's try to bring this home and make it practical to us. We're talking about the Jews and their unbelief. and Let's talk about us today. William MacDonald, I think, helps us out here in his commentary. He says this, the more men reject the gospel, the harder it becomes for them to receive it. Let me say that again. The more men reject the gospel, the harder it becomes for them to receive it. When men close their eyes to the light, God makes it more difficult for them to see the light. And then he says this, and this is the crux of it here. God caused them to be struck with judicial blindness. That is a blindness which is God's judgment on them for refusing his son. How many of you are familiar with that term, Judicial blindness, right? That's what I thought. If you haven't been to Bible college or seminary, you probably haven't heard of that expression, judicial blindness, but it's a a theological term which is simply used to, to describe an act of judgment by God for persistent unbelief. In other words, if a person continues to harden their hearts against the truth of God's word, there may come a day when God hardens their hearts completely so they cannot believe. Are you scared yet? <laughs> I mean, this is scary stuff. And I appreciate what D.A. Carson said here. He said, just to kind of make sure we keep this in balance and we don't run off and become fatalists when it comes to you know, God's sovereignty and all this, he says God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. In other words, we wouldn't all come out like with perfect eyesight and with perfectly soft hearts, right? As if we were morally neutral. No. We were already blind. We were already hard. And so God blinded the eyes of the the people of Israel and and hardened their hearts as a result of them closing their own eyes intentionally and deliberately and intentionally deliberately hardened their own hearts. It's the Romans 1 dynamic, right? That although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and therefore He gave them what? Over. He gave them over, He gave them over, He gave them over. So don't think that God blinds or hardens anyone against their will. No, it's their own choice, it's their own fault. And the, 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 the classic example of this in, in, in all the Bible is, of course, who? Pharaoh, exactly. And, and we don't have time to, to, to look at that, that all the references that we could look at in the book of Exodus but I'm sure most of you are familiar with that dynamic in in, in Exodus. That, that that if and this is maybe a good little homework assignment uh, for you. Uh, may, starting in, I'll just give you the starting point and the ending point. Start in Exodus chapter four, verse twenty one, and then end in Exodus chapter fourteen, verse seventeen. So you can just kind of quickly skim chapters fourteen uh, through uh, chapter uh, chapter four through chapter fourteen, and, and looking for all the times it mentions. Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's a fascinating thing. It's like like watching a tennis match or a ping pong game. It's like bang, 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 back and forth. Like, whoa, time out. Who's hardening who here? What's what's happening, right? And what you'll find is that 10 times it says very specifically that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then 10 other times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So who was it? Yes, (laughs) it's a mystery. But I think it's even uh, providential that it was 10 times that it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and 10 times that God hardened his heart. There's the tension, right? The healthy balance. It's equal. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And John MacArthur simply says this, it is a sobering reality that those who persistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by him. Well, we've got to turn to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, probably the most controversial chapter in the New Testament. Paul describing the doctrine of election, another mystery in Scripture, right? Romans chapter 9, verse... We can just start in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And Paul anticipated the immediate reaction of the human mind and heart. You will say to me then, he's, he's anticipating, a, uh, excuse me, Professor Paul, I got a question. <laughs> that just didn't sound right. That he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? How, how can God blame me? Right? for a hard heart and and being blind to the truth and and, and my unbelief and rejecting Christ if he's partly responsible for that. Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? (laughs) The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make them from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Do you feel like you're kind of down in this like dark cavern going, hey, would somebody turn the light switch on for me? I mean, where's the torch? Lead me out of this thing, right? Because there's, there's parts here that are always going to be dark while we're here on this earth. And, and it won't be until we get in the presence of, the glorious presence of Christ when all these things will, will, will kind of make sense to us, when, when we're made like him. But, but just, maybe just, Let's, let's climb out of the, 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 the cavern here and just think about a very kind of a little takeaway here, okay? Here, here's a takeaway for us. The, the longer you remain an unbeliever, the harder it is to become a believer. How's that? Is that practical enough? The, the longer you remain an unbeliever, the harder it is to become a believer. In fact, the truth of the matter is whether you like it or not, we are unable to believe unless God mercifully enables us to believe. And we say that again, we are unable to believe unless God mercifully enables us to believe. And John has been making this very clear from the very first chapter of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even of those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in uh, same chapter, John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, the words that I have spoken to you are the spirit in our life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Remember I told you to hang on to that granted thought? No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then of course Ephesians 2.8 eight. Most of you have that memorized, I'm sure, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that faith isn't even of yourselves, it is a what? Gift of God, so that no one can boast. I think it's interesting what Moses said in Deuteronomy 29. This is right after the Israelites came out of the the land of egypt it says moses summoned all israel and said to them you have seen all that the lord did before your eyes in the land of egypt to pharaoh and to all his servants all his land the great trials which were your eyes which your eyes have seen and these great signs and wonders yet to this day the lord has not given you a heart to know nor eyes to see nor ears to hear and while israel was mostly rebellious throughout the Old Testament. There were moments of repentance where they cried out to God for mercy. And in fact, Isaiah is kind of a summary of, of their whole story. And that's why I think it's interesting that John quotes, you know, it's no surprise that John quotes Isaiah here in his gospel. But there's another portion of Isaiah that I just want to close with this morning. Isaiah 63 Isaiah 63, and here God is wanting to restore the nation of Israel, and they're reminiscing on all of His mercies in, his, in the past, and, and this, is, this is their cry, this is their cry, Isaiah, this is, this is the cry of the... The nation of Israel, Isaiah 63, verse 15, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal and your mighty deeds. The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while, our adversaries have trodden it down and they go on just to basically cry out, even in the next chapter, verse 64, chapter 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Verse 4, from the days of old. They have not heard or perceived by ear, nor is the eye seen beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, for we sinned. We continue to them a long time, and we shall, and shall we be saved? For, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. What is going on here? They're just they didn't just sit down and say, well, you know what? God's sovereign. Nothing we can do about it. We're toast. We made our bed. We need to sleep in it. Right? We're done. Which so many people do today who maybe get exposed to this teaching and they're like, they become fatalistic and they're like, you know what? Nothing I can do about the fact that I'm not a Christian. I just I, guess I have to just keep living the way I'm living and wait for God to zap me. I'm waiting for this uh, lightning bolt from heaven Right to save me, but in the meantime, there's nothing I can do. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, there's a whole lot you can do. And, and what you can do is to cry to him for mercy. That's what you can do. You can cry to God for mercy. And say, God, why are my eyes blind? Why is my my heart hard? Would you be gracious and would you open my blind eyes and would you soften my hard heart so that I could understand the truth and that you would grant me repentance and faith? That's what you can do. That's man's responsibility. And you're gonna be held accountable for that. Whether or not you cried out to God for mercy and begged him to grant you repentance and faith. You know, this is how we need to pray for our unbelieving family and, and, and friends. It's not us up to us to save them. Yes, I'm not saying be passive, don't ever share the gospel, go into just prayer mode. No. God provides the means for their salvation through us, right? But how do you pray for your unbelieving family and friends? You beg God, you cry out to God for mercy. Say, God, be merciful to them and open up their blind eyes. Soften their hard hearts. Grant them repentance and faith. And hopefully for us, it just blows us away, right? Because none of us can take credit for having a soft heart or eyes at sea, right? That's a gift that has been granted to us by God. We don't deserve it. It's his mercy. He didn't give us what we deserved. And so our hearts just should be filled with such joy and such gratitude and wonder, love, and praise for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, you tell us to seek you while you may be found and call upon you while you are near, to forsake our wicked ways and our unrighteous thoughts and to return to you and you will have compassion on us and you'll, you'll pardon us and you'll forgive us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who, who has, has, has had a, a hard heart towards you and maybe blinded their eyes to you and, and, and maybe you've even um, caused them not to be able to understand, Lord, today that you would be merciful to them. Lord, that you would soften their heart. You would open their eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ and that you would overpower Satan's blinding influence and even sin's blinding influence today and make Christ, uh, let them see Christ in, in all of his glory, that they would want him more than anything else that this life has to offer. Lord, burden our hearts for the lost. Help us to be faithful to pray. And Lord, may we live this week just filled with joy, just ecstatic that you have opened up our eyes to see and our hearts to believe. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory for that in Jesus' name, amen.